This morning, we are going to explore what the scriptures say about our God of all comfort. We just finished a series going through the letters to the church in Thessalonica. It was going through difficult times of incredible suffering, incredible pressure. And uh, before we head into the Advent season, I thought this would be uh, an, an appropriate theme to explore because ultimately we have a God that's continually coming towards us. And we see that, uh, and we saw that this morning as we were celebrating in those baptisms. Our scripture today comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope. So that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious gracious favor granted in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. This morning as we explore this text, we are going to consider three things. How God's comfort gives us insight into his nature produces resilience for times of trouble, and rejuvenates us to live driven by the gospel, not circumstance. So first, how God's comfort gives us insight into his nature. God is transcendent, but he's also eminent. He's powerful and personal. And from the beginning, we see right from Genesis, his desire is always to be with us. He invites us to cast our cares on him with absolute brutal honesty. In verse 3, talks about the God... Uh, describes God as being a God of all comfort. And this comfort is not merely soothing. And in English, that's when we hear the word comfort, we immediately think of soothing. That is true, no doubt, of God and his nature and who he is for us. But it is actually much more than that, and I wanted to explore that a little bit this morning. As I've said, as we were going through the study to the church in Thessalonica, God is not just sending positive vibes. That's not peace. His peace has, is like a stabilizing force, and we're going to see a little bit more of that today as it relates to God's comfort. That God comes towards us in our suffering. It, it, this text was very clear that Jesus, being human, identifies with us in our suffering. Having a God who suffers is unique to Christianity. There's many, many worldviews and many um, religions in the world and many concepts of God in the world, but the God who suffers and identifies with the suffering of humanity is unique to our God, unique to our Jesus, that he's not an inaccessible, unrelatable sovereign who sort of looks down on us and he's like, ooh, gross, clean yourselves up a bit and maybe I'll get close to you. Sometimes, if, for those of you who've grown up in church, 
your whole lives hearing terms like the holiness of God and like the perfection of God, the glory of God, that, that sometimes we create this dissonance where we, we assume that God being holy means that, the, that him being holy means he's disgusted with us. But if that were true, he would have never donned the dirt of his own creation and wrapped himself in the clothing of his own creation and come to be with us. In fact, what we see throughout Scripture is God's holiness on display is moving towards his people. There's a Hebrew scholar named Tim Mackey, and he says it this way, that uh, the holiness of God being demonstrated is not that God doesn't want to be with us. It's that we can't, in our state, be with a holy God. For example, God manifests on the mountain in the Old Testament, and he says, don't touch the mountain lest you die. But he's not saying, don't touch the mountain, you're so disgusting to me, lest you die. He's condescended to the mountain because he's wanting to get as close to his people as possible. God, from the beginning, has been moving towards his people. His holiness, his perfection, his glory, his display, is, is, cannot be divorced from his incredible love for his creation. And so as we're heading into the Advent season, this God of all comfort, we find on display constantly in the lyrics of so many of the Christmas hymns. They're all peppered with this idea of God with us, God who's come with us. The kids are in the class this morning, and uh, I'm taking a big risk here by asking the kids in the service to help me, because sometimes you know how that, that can maybe, I don't know, we'll see. But when you guys are in your kids' class, Susan always says to you guys, God's goal is to... I knew it was going to happen. God's goal is to be with us. This is what God's goal has been from the beginning, from the jump, is to be with us. And uh, you see that throughout all of the, the, the Christmas hymns of God moving towards us. That He's been interested in temples from the beginning. And I don't mean temples made of brick and mortar. The book of Genesis is the temple. We talk about this quite often. The realm of God and the realm of humanity, gloriously and beautifully intertwined. Go to the book of Revelation. There it is again. The glorious of God's divinity and humanity, gloriously intertwined through the poetry of the city of the New Jerusalem coming down. It's a poetry getting us to envision the realm of God, the realm of this renewed world converged again. That he would be our God, we would be his people, and we would flourish, not as a ethereal part of the cosmos, here in renewed bodies, in a renewed world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ being gritty to that. But in between, lots of temples. The temple, uh, the, the, the tabernacle, God wanting to be with his people. The, tem- the temple of Solomon, God wanting to be with his people. Condescending, condescending to be with his people. The, te- the tabernacle surrounded by the 12 tribes. Jesus Christ comes, incarnates, God incarnate to be with his people. Surrounded by not 12 tribes, but 12 disciples. Very intentional image of the reconstitution of true Israel, true Israel around Jesus in a spiritual, glorious, global way. That all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are his people. He is our God. We are his people. And then the Holy Spirit condescends in, in Pentecost and indwells us. And now we are mobile temples. Mobile temples bringing the love, the life, the ministry, the care, the gospel of God to our city, to our to our streets that we live on, to our neighborhoods, to our classrooms. This idea of God coming towards us and being with us has always been his desire. And therefore, this God of all comfort being with us is just one, one more uh, 
reminder of that motion towards us, which leads us to the second thing, that the comfort of God produces resilience for times of trouble. So comfort is beyond just the soothing. In the Greek, it's parakaleos or paraklete, the root word of paraklete, which means to make strong, to make brave, to make steadfast. This is what it means to have God be our comforter. So it's more than just the arm around the shoulder saying it's going to be okay. I'm not diminishing that because there's times when we need God to do that. But, but I just need us to see that the, the glory of God's comfort uh, is, is even more than this. In the, in the, when, this. when the Greek New Testament was translated later into Latin, the Latin for this was sportis. And so for those of you who are football fans, I don't mean American football, I mean proper football fans, right, of the global game, right, you know that the Tifosi in, in Italy, they will shout Forza Italia. That comes from the fortis. Strength, brave, courage. Like where they would shout, Forza Italia. And when they shout Forza Italia, um, they don't mean like it's okay. Although, after the last few World Cup showings, it did mean precisely it's okay. But you need to see that when the stadium's shouting that, it, this is about a strength and a courage. And this is the God of all comfort. This is the God of all comfort that the apostles needed when they despaired of life itself. And they wanted to starfish on the couch and, and ball up because... The pressure was relentless. And this is the God of comfort that you and I need in our lives in these exact same moments. And Paul considers God the Father this comforter, this paraclete. We know that the Holy Spirit is also referred as the paraclete. John 14, John 15, John 16. And and Jesus Christ the Son, he is referred to as the comforter, the paraclete. 1 John 2, Hebrews 2, Luke 2. So in every aspect of God's being, full of comfort, stabilizing strength... To infuse you with strength in your suffering precisely because he identifies with suffering. Precisely because he knows what it is to be hungry and, de- and, and despairing of life. He knows what it is to sweat blood in the garden from grief and anxiety. And, and he knows what it is. He identifies. And I want you to notice why he comforts us. He wants to build resilience in us in times of trouble. But further than that, verse 4, comfort us, keywords, so that we can comfort others. He's comforting us so that we'll be ministers from the comfort that, we've res- that we have received. The apostle suffering more and more. That receiving of God's comfort made him a very effective minister. And this is so key for us to understand. The end game in God's comfort of strengthening, strengthening us is so that we can curve back out. This is not a call on all Christians to be professional therapists and counselors, and some of us can shy away from the idea of comfort, comforting others because we feel like we're not qualified or we don't know enough or we're not trained or it's not our gift. But I want you to notice that this is something that is uh, present and available for the whole church in Corinth, that they would be comforted so that they can be comforters, that they can give from what they've received, not having pain answers, which is what we kind of feel like we need to have for people who are in pain and sorrow and suffering answers and think clever and helpful things to say no being there who is this god of all comfort he's with us why are we called to be comforters to be with people in the pain in the sorrow in the suffering to be present and we can feel like that that's somebody else is better suited to do that but we can care it's not the same as being professionally trained in in, in these sorts of things this is about care. It can be intimidating, I know. We can all be. It, it, it can be tempting to just say, I don't have any bandwidth to comfort the people sitting in the chairs next to me. 
I only have bandwidth for myself. I don't have time for your drama. I have drama. I don't have time for your pain. I have pain. Rome kicks down your door. Oh, well, hey, newsflash. Rome kicked down my door. I can't help you. Every man for himself. No. There is something in this that is healing. One time I got asked, I think it was 2013, 2014, I got asked, hey, will you, um, this ministry said, will you come to, come to Nunavut, Nunavut and um, speak at this youth conference? And I said, sure, I'll go do that. And then I got there and they said, oh, well, it's not really speaking. It's, count, it's more counseling. There's an office over here where there's young people who have been addicted to various uh, you know, things. They've got, they're really going through traumatic things and we'd just love for you to minister to them. That is, I can't even explain how outside that, the box that is of where I feel like my gifts are. It's not that pastoral care and counseling and training aren't a part of what you do as a minister. But if, if somebody had said, will you come and be a counselor for a week? I would have said, that's not my really my primary area. <laughs> if you need me to teach and I'm going to be much more comfortable there. And I called Susan the first day and I was like, oh boy, I'm despairing of life itself. Because I really feel like it's going to be, I'm going to be gloriously insufficient for what's needed here. And it took me a couple of days to recalibrate, to just be like, just care. You're here now. You can't get on another plane. Care. And so there's something in this that is key for the church to grasp. In Corinth and in this church. And it's that the way out is the way out. The way out of our sorrow and our pain and our suffering and our anxieties is to get out of ourselves. Out of our own heads. Out of our, out of our own self. Do you see it? We are comforted so that we can comfort others. The way out is the way out. It's because this is intrinsically linked to how God has created us to flourish. It's, it's cross-shaped. And so for us to convince ourselves, no, actually the way out is for me to stay in. This is incongruent with the way in which God has created us as his glorious image bearers to relate to life. Despite popular or educated voices that would maybe say to us, the way out is the way in. No. And so, in this, we can be desperately afraid of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. But there's a big gap between saying the wrong thing and doing nothing. There's a big gap between having a PhD that serves people and distancing yourself from people, withdrawing from people, abandoning people. There's a big gap in there. And so there's something in this that there's a resilience that comes for times of trouble. There's a call here for the church to love and to care. And it's all really flowing from our desire to be image bearers of Jesus. And so in this sharing of the suffering, God forges his strength and his character in us. He is our comforter. And he comforts our hearts and he quiets our minds. He recalibrates us. And many of us have been there. In verse 8, it says that they were under pressure far beyond their ability to endure. They despaired of life itself. I want to die. This is the apostles writing this. We wanted to die. We thought we were given a death sentence. Did you read that? The apostles just flopped out, laying, at the ce- laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling, going, what are we doing with our lives? Have you been there? Our God identifies with this kind of pain. He identifies with it. The, the suffering that the, I've, I talked about this in the study to Thessalonica, but just to remind you, the word for suffering here, that Greek word, thalipsis, that ongoing constant pressure, I gave you that image of a wine press just bleeding out the grapes, and the moment they stop bleeding, you just add more pressure till more comes. This thalipsis, this physical pressure, it's manifesting 
in, a, in physical ways, in the same way that the modern vernacular, we would say things like the body keeps score. We'd say things like the things that are going on in our, in our hearts and in our minds, they manifest in our bodies. And God gives us, God gives us comfort and strength for this. And I want you to know that, I, that I'm, not, um, I'm not trying to be trite about any of this, because I'm cognizant that there's, there's many struggles in this room. I need to practice what I'm preaching. There are times when I thoroughly practice what I'm preaching, and then there's times when I do not practice what I'm preaching. And last week is an example of that, as it relates to this. Last Sunday, I preached, and I looked like the pink panther under my clothing. I was covered in hives from my neck to my feet. Because a couple of weeks ago, I went through a, a, an incredibly stressful situation. It didn't have anything to do with our immediate church family, so you can relax if you're like, oh no, I'm a sermon illustration. No, uh, it's okay. But it was incredibly stressful, and instead of practicing what I preach and turning to God and relying on God and doing these things, which I have rhythms in my life built in to do, there was a period of a couple of days where I just kind of grit my teeth and flexed, clenched my fists, and I was just basically angry for about 72 hours, maybe longer than that, just churning inside with anger and stress, and it manifested in these, these terrible hives. And Saturday night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was like, oh my goodness, it never happened in, in my life. And I wake up Susan, and she's like, what's going on? And she's like, whoa! And so I'm like, lathering my, here I am. And so last Sunday, then I'm up here preaching, and I'm like, man, you got to practice what you preach, because like, you're covered in hives while you're preaching this. Would have been ironic if I was covered in hives preaching the God of comfort, but, um, but, but the hives are not there now, so I just feel like really sanctified. Uh, I feel like so authoritative in telling you uh, to turn to your God of comfort. But we can all fail at this, right? And, and there's a resilience that's available when we turn to the goodness of God. And what's being offered for us is endurance. And, this, this, and the endurance in the Greek... That's being, indo- that's being offered, uh, the sense of it. By the way, I should say this. English is sufficient. That whatever language you happen to be speaking where your scriptures are translated, it's sufficient to understand the core of the doctor, doctrine of the Bible and the core of the gospel. The only reason I dive into some of these Greek words is because I'm cognizant that some of you have been in church for quite a while, and it's easy to be like, read that, read that, saw that, read that. So if you can nuance... Something that you're familiar with, like throwing a little bit of spice in there, and sometimes it's helpful for our growth. So this word endurance, it's not passive, bleak acceptance. Uh, This word endurance is about uh, being infused with something. So for example, if a child has to go to the dentist and you want to distract the child and you hand the child an iPad, you're giving them something so they can endure something. But that's not what God gives. Because the, the, the child is essentially being distracted, but not benefited by what's being given. You're benefited as a parent, you know, because you've got five minutes of solace as the child stares into a screen. The child is not benefiting. So that's not God giving endurance, like just get through this, grin and bear it, and get through this terrible thing. The endurance, the hupomone in the Greek, would, would, would be like, the image would be like, giving water to a marathon runner where you're giving them something for endurance. Giving water to a marathon runner is doing something profound. This is the God of comfort giving you endurance. This is why to turn to him, the rhythm of spiritual disciplines are gifts, means of grace. 
Not measures of like, how mature am I? Should I, can I flex on my, you know, my patterns of meditation and prayer and whatever and, and turn to other people and point at them and be like, yo, I got some serious um, dis- spiritual disciplines in my life and you've got to have them too. You've misunderstood completely what these are for. Prayer, meditation, gathering for worship, Lord's table, carving Sundays out of your life saying, I must be with God's people. I need the word. I need the sacrament. It is not a, a checklist, a scorekeeping, a hierarchy of how righteous you are. It is water to your soul. It is water that God gives to infuse with endurance. It's what he gives to strengthen his people. And so this leads us to the final thing. The rejuvenation of living life driven by the gospel and not by circumstance. The comfort of God. He has always done this. He has always given his comfort by his presence and through his people. Those two ways. And in the second half of verse 8 says that, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Just meditate on this relying on the God who raises the dead. It's like they're laying on the ground despairing of life. They're depressed. And then remember the resurrection. They have an advantage you and I don't have. They saw it with their eyes. So that's a motivator that you and I don't have. And yet we are indwelt by his spirit. And the word of God says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And so yet the, in, the in, uh, infusing power of the Holy Spirit enables you and I to be rejuvenated in the same way. Where we, we turn and rely and remember the gospel. That the gospel is not merely a set of beliefs that usher us into the Christian faith. The gospel is the very power by which we live out the Christian faith. Romans 1.26 I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's news that's power. They re- the, go- the apostles reflect on something that has a physiological reaction in them. And you do this all the time with news. You look at your news feed, see things, and you have a physiological reaction all the time. Sometimes it's good, but most of the time it's bad. Because let's face it, the terrible stuff gets more clicks. So most of the, so we understand we're, in, we're used to doing this. Here's some news, and now I feel something. You're not there. You can't do anything about it, actually. It happened. It's news. It, it happened. It already happened. You can, what can you do? You can respond to it. You can have a response but news means something outside you that happened is now impacting you and there's nothing you can do about it. The good news of the gospel is that what Jesus Christ has done is outside us, for us, towards us, has nothing to do with us. And that's why we say we are saved by grace and faith alone. It's the good news of the gospel. The apostles are all reflecting on this and it's rejuvenating them completely. And so he says that In the same way that we're partaking of the suffering, we're partakers of the consolation. They know all of this firsthand. Verse 10, he says, verse 10, he says, the God who's delivered us in the past is going to deliver us in the future. It just, and then he goes on to use this phrase, setting hope. Setting is hope. And setting our hopes is not one and done. It's continual. It's waking up every day and determining that we've got to drop the anchor. What, I'm, what am I going to anchor my hope in? My trust, my sense of calm, my sense of security about my future. It's that I'm a child of God. It's that my life is in his hands. It's that he's on the other side of every decision I make. And he's going to work it out for his glory and the good of my salvation. And so God has always done this through his presence, but also through his people. 
Verse 11, as you help us with your prayers. This is my commercial for community, for the importance of community. You know, the, there, you, the only reason that we live stream this service is so that when you are away on holidays or, or you're sick, you can connect. Now, there's other reasons that people can, folks, live stream, but that's the only reason I do it. Because I'm not responsible to pastor the internet, the city, people around. Like, uh, that's, you're my responsibility. Praise God, God's used technology to, you know, reach folks who are moving to our city from various places. And it's been really helpful in lots of ways. But the bottom line is, the church is the community. And the apostles are strengthened by the community. And so to the degree that we care, it's not just, Christianity's not a head trip. It's not just me and God and my devos. It's the community. There is a strength that's available there. And I don't mean the organized, you know, church uh, you know, event community, although that is beautiful if you can connect in those ways, whether it's community groups or otherwise. But if not, organically being connected in community. As you help us with your prayers, he says. And, and it's just, you know, he's not just, it's not a Hail Mary he's just throwing out there. This is like people that he knows that he has spent time with, this church that he's planted. That the, the, the times of meditation in the solitary are powerful and yet there is some tangible comfort in community tangible comfort you don't get when you're just worshiping God in meditation in the solitary and so he says help us by your prayers you know the people of God have always prayed prayers that were written prayers recited prayers in accordance with God's revealed word and they would pray those things pray those things repeat those things the book of Psalms is the biggest example of this because it is essentially a prayer book and a hymnal for the people of God. And so, you know, in our services, we read a lot of, we pray corporately prayers that are thoughtfully composed and rooted in Scripture to give us words to express our emotions and petitions on difficult topics. It is teaching us to pray scripturally, corporately, so that we have a good foundation. So that when life is on fire and we're by ourselves, we can pray scripturally, organically, individually. And so the apostles, they are strengthened by the prayers of their people. This rhythm of prayer that was constantly in their life. This gift to, to give the water to the marathon runner. Consider athletes for a moment. The rhythms that they have in their life to develop muscle memory. How many slap shots does it take? How many free throws does it take? How many golf swings does it take? I mean, how many, how many slap shots do you have to stop? How many, how many defensive plays do you need to make? I mean, the, the, they're trying to create muscle memory. They're trying to create something so that their reflex actions are actually trained responses. This is what the apostle is wanting in the church. That the reflex action under terrible circumstances is actually a trained response. There's an old Greek poet, ancient Greek poet named Archilochus, who made a phrase that went rampant in the sport, sporting world. And the phrase is, nobody rises to the occasion. Everybody falls to the level of their training. And that ancient Greek philosophy has got a lot of truth to it. The apostles are not expecting the church is going to rise to the occasion. He's expecting that they're going to fall and rest on the rhythms 
of the traditions of their prayer and of their reflection and their reliance and their turning on God. And so that small community is being called uh, to rely and to encourage one another in that way. And too often, pride keeps us from community and pain keeps us from community. And when pride is at work and pain is at work, that's the devil's playground for us to just be isolated from where the comfort and the strength and the resilience can come. That's what Paul wants uh, going on in that church community. This is what we want in our church community, that we can be his hands and his feet to care for, for one another, that we will set our hopes on him. You know, God is not a vindictive parent who gets some dark pleasure from the pain and the suffering of his children. No. When, when a parent takes the training wheels off, they open up all kinds of possibilities. When God said, of every tree you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. He opened up all kinds of possibilities. Possibility for tremendous flourishing and possibility for idolatry and self-service, which is what humanity chose. If a child spits in their parents' face and takes that bike with no training wheels and drives into traffic, the parent, by giving the dignity of choice, opened up that possibility You could blame the parent for that. You should have never taken the training wheels off. You should have never given them the choice. How many times I've heard that in the last 20 years, pastoring? Why did God give us a choice? Why didn't God, why, 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 why did he take the training? That's what you think flourishing humanity is? Life in training wheels? No. But if the child obeys the parents, and the child learns to enjoy the freedom of having the right disciplines, and the child goes on to win the Tour de France, the parent, by giving the dignity of choice, also opened up that flourishing possibility. God uses trouble and suffering and all manner of terrible thing that the enemy of your soul would have to destroy you. And he uses that sad and sorrowful thing to forge his character in you and his resilience in you because he is the God of all comfort. Praise to be the God of all comfort, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those with the trouble that we ourselves have received from God. Let's pray.